Thanks for tuning in to our bonus episode preview. This is just a short sample of this week's exclusive Patreon episode. You can hear the episode in its entirety by becoming a member at patreon.com slash indoctrination, where you'll gain access to all of our exclusive episodes and merchandise. I wondered, Mr. Hubbard, if you could explain simply to a layman what Scientology is. The subject of name means skill, which means knowing how to know in the fullest sense of the word, ology, which is study of. So it is actually study of knowingness. That is what the word itself means. The subject, to me, yeah. To me, that doesn't mean very much. I understand that. I mean, what does it do for you, in theory? It increases one's knowingness. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into another very special bonus episode. We couldn't do it without your support. And as we reflect on the over 250 listener-supported episodes spanning the past five years, I thought it would be important to revisit some of the material we've covered with regard to one of the most notorious cults of all time, Scientology. As many of you know, I have personally been harassed by the group for many years, as have others who have spoken on the show, such as Tony Ortega, Chris Shelton, Tori Chrisman, and many more, who have been a target of their quote-unquote fair game policy, a policy they say they don't have, but they have. Another one of the moments of gaslighting that exists within this group. We've spoken with dozens of survivors like Vanessa LaRose, who spoke out for the very first time publicly on our show, to some of the most important activists like Claire Headley, who brought a historic case against Scientology, and Phil and Willie Jones, who created the famous billboard campaign against the cult's tragic family separation policy. We've even had the opportunity to cover the dangerous front groups of Scientology in our interview with the former president of Narconon, as well as interviews with victims of the supposed rehab facility, like Pam, who suffered greatly as a result of its irresponsible medical practices. While the group finally seems to be dwindling in numbers and the general population seems to have at least a cursory understanding of the destructive legacy of L. Ron Hubbard, I wanted to provide a concentrated look into the deeper and often more personal details we've uncovered over the years. So in this episode, we will revisit some of those emotionally revealing and humanizing stories as we attempt to educate the public about the reality of this group that I recently described as more like the mafia than a church. And what better way to do that than with the words of the brilliant great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard. These are Jamie's words read by me on what would be the 111th birthday 
of Scientology's founder. Happy 111th birthday to my great-granddad, L. Ron Hubbard. He's somewhere out in space, marshalling forces against the Galactic Federation. For a man who once wrote that he wanted to smash his name in history, Elrond's legacy continues to be an open wound in the psyche of the last half century. His victims still walk the streets from Clearwater to Moscow. His words are still hammered into the minds of the young. Though he died decades ago in isolation, except for his ghosts that even an e-meter couldn't exorcise, in the end, Elrond could never escape himself. Maybe he looked in the mirror on that ranch and saw a victory looking back, an old man who never saw a day of jail for all his crimes, a man who achieved his dreams of dying rich with an army of shadow puppets carrying on his charade of a life, eternal soldiers saluting to statues of the hero that never was. He lived a life with more plot twists than his novels, a military man who went to war with the world and wrote a new past for himself, a student of black magic who would encode his theology into a labyrinth of vampiric control. He wrote a biography of what he wanted to be and trained others to repeat it until he could tell tall tales long after his body was turned to ash. He was my first childhood hero growing up, I had volumes of his work in my bookshelf as I typed away at my own stories. He was smiling in the back covers and I'd write him letters hoping one day he'd read my words. I'd go to bookstores with his daughter and with his son, never knowing he was already in hiding. I didn't know what else was hidden then, the secrets my family kept behind silence. People often ask me if I have love for my great-grandfather, if I admire him in any way. Sure I do. I admire his audacity, his brilliance. I admire his guts. I find him as entertaining as the dozens of storytellers, comedians, and poets that I've toured with. I play his recordings, and we laugh. But his hunger for control and cash at the sake of someone else's sanity is difficult to forgive. The damage he did with his time on the planet still echoes until today. I'm related to three L. Ron Hubbards, all men who took that name and went another way. I've spent my life adamantly trying to be everything he's not. He sold people lies. I try to tell ugly truths. He manipulated millions. And I teach writing to youth and tell them to never forget the power of their own voice. My family hasn't fully told our story yet. I hope we won't die with our secrets, but we're living evidence he wasn't the man he said he was. If he's out there watching, his malevolent narcissism would be warming his hands over all of us talking about him again. But let's tell his true story, the one he wouldn't tell the world. And now here is Jamie DeWolf in his own voice from our second interview in 2019. One of the biggest tricks of cults is making you feel that you're empowering yourself 
while you're ultimately giving your money, your time, your focus, and your praise towards an individual. Yeah. And that's everything from Nexium to Jim Jones to Elrond. It's that it goes into a lot of phrases about we and us, but there's usually one person giving those phrases. There's one person who's the conduit. And it's really everything flipped on its side. I mean, if someone just came out and they said, I'm making a cult celebrating me, it would never work. I think a lot of people really misunderstand that right from the get-go. They're like, how come people don't know they're in a cult? How come people don't see that this is an obvious cult leader? And that's because those people, they, they never start by presenting it as about them. It's always about giving you power, you wisdom, you clarity, uh, a new sense of emotional stability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you, you look at Nexium, for example, which I've definitely been obsessed with because it's like a weird, evolved, compressed version of Scientology in some respects. And it's really all about self-betterment, but it's really all about Keith Renary, you know, I mean, that he is the focal point. Mm-hmm. He never really says that this is about me, even though he's called the vanguard and Elron is called source. You know, I mean, that they're, right. they're never the god of this creation, but they act as if they are and they're celebrated as if they are. And it's this whole disguised narcissism of basically you hide behind something that's selfless and is absolutely profiting you. I think the catnip for a lot of them is is basically having that sort of arrangement where people are grateful to you for giving them the keys to this new land of of opportunity and 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 emotional control that you alone hold. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the devil's bargain, and that's where it starts. Is that when you're able to convince people of that? then you're already on the road. I mean, it it really starts with just basically saying, don't you want to be a better person? Don't you wish that you could get rid of these pathologies, these things that hold you back and and hang, you know, and so that you step forward and you basically say, I am trying to help you. Let me help you. And that any resistance that you have to that, a resistance to being controlled, or debating who this individual is who's claiming to have this special secret knowledge. And it's all built into it so that you already have counters to, you know, basically present all of the opposition against you from the get-go. You know, with Scientology, it's that psychiatry is trying to stop us. With Nexium, it's that these are all these other movements that are trying to stop us because they don't want you to have access to this kind of insight but I alone control this insight. You know, you look at something like Jonestown, for instance, and that uh, that was all about the community. You know what I mean? It was, it was though it was literally called Jonestown, um, but I mean, it was the people's temple. It wasn't Jim Jones and acolytes. You know what I mean? It's, it's, but I mean, you look at it from an objective standpoint and you're like, well, of course, this, this is the person driving it. You know what I mean? If this person dies, then the whole thing evaporates. And uh, unless there's some kind of infrastructure that continues it forward, similar to uh, Scientology. But I mean, you know, David Miscavige stepped into that role in kind of a different way and then eventually ended up taking on that mantle and embodying it of basically becoming the same role that I am the conduit, you know, where David Miscavige is not Elrond, but he's the conduit to keeping the information accurate and Scientology working, right? 
And so that's right. where people start to fall. I mean, I think that the, you know, intoxicating element for all of the co-leaders in general, if you had to sort of like, you know, line them up in some sweet little club is it starts with this intense narcissism that, you know, usually is like on the verge of megalomania, if not outright psychosis. And, you know, that sort of kind of manic depressive elements, right. but that you start with a fictitious biography where it's either outright lies or at the very least distortions and exaggerations. So I think for them, it really starts with having a stronger vision of themselves that then is perpetuated in the minds of others. And it only reinforces it to a point where you're no longer that failure who was rejected years ago. You're now David Koresh, who's, you know, not a struggling guitarist. You're now someone who's actually, you know, has a divine mission and you're getting people in line with that. And I think it also always gets kind of, um, doesn't get looked at enough, but the inner circle in those early days is so key to the longevity of their mission. There's usually power struggles kind of near the start because other people sign on to the sense of community and a sense of we, and they realize pretty quickly that that's not going to be the case. You know what I mean? That they've been sold this line, but that it's absolutely driven by this one individual and is really a manifestation of their will and their kind of persona. So then you find these power struggles in the early days. Um, and then often the leader, the eventual leader, you know, successful and victorious in those struggles and then continues. And then they make this sort of core circle, which are like really kind of their pit bulls and some of the most dangerous people in the organizations because they're the true blue soldiers. And they're the ones that are often on the other side of the rainbow and actually know all of the, the, the issues that are really like actually behind the curtain. You know, these are the people who know all of the lawsuits, all of the enemies, all of the different crises that they have to contain, but at the same time still have this endless devotion to their leader. So I think it's, it's basically these kind of, you know, loner individuals who have figured out some sort of a gambit that will mobilize people Mm -hmm. under this shield of of communal help and uh you know that that you're trying to make a movement together when it's really you the one that's driving it mm -hmm. and that i think that a lot of after that how a lot of them degenerate is into the you know sort of sociopathic perks of sex with members that you can justify for any reason that you want having this sort of muscle to destroy your enemies past and, and present and that kind of armada that you can execute against anybody that steps forward. And then after that, it usually just unspools <laughs> pretty quickly. It usually gets to the point where they pretty much follow the, the same story arc of every other gangster and everything where it's like, if they're not careful, then they just become power hungry and you overstep, you know, you take it too far. You're too brutal towards your opposition. You are too greedy with, uh, you know, how you're devouring the assets of your members and the sexual dynamics and all of that. And, and that's where they start to start to fall. Mm -hmm. 